let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us, your mercies that are new every morning, your grace, which is abundant, which is the topic that we're going to be touching on this morning. Thank you so much. Um, after watching the video that we saw earlier with John, it's just made, it's, it's renewed in my heart the passion to live for you. You who went through so much for me, how can I do anything less than give you what remnants I have of my life and my heart and seek to glorify you and to honor you and to live for you for the rest of my days? Help us all to do that. Help us to really get to know you and to be pursuing your will and your purpose because that is the best reason for living. That's what generates real purpose and real joy in life. Life can be very boring, really, very um, almost catastrophic in, a, in a, a very slow way when we live it for ourselves. But when we live it for you, you give us purpose and hope and direction and the cause for living. And I thank you so much for that hope that we have that you give to us. Thank you for the invitation that you extend to us for the gospel, through the gospel, and for the work of our Savior on our behalf. Let's now this time as we open your word back up to uh, Titus chapter 2, and uh, we're looking at a new text of scripture today, and I ask your blessing upon that, and I just pray in my Savior's name with thanksgiving. Amen. We're in chapter 2 of Titus, and we're beginning in verse 11. We've been looking at the first 10 verses for the last month or so, I guess. And uh, it's been it's a good, good text of scripture. Things that were fitting for sound doctrine was our topic as we were looking at what uh, Paul was writing to Titus about the people he'd be working with. And he divided, remember, he divided the audience of people that Titus would be working with just as what all of us would be working with into age groups. We talked about older men, that would be dignified and sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance. Older women that uh, would be reverent in their behavior. They would be not malicious gossips, not slave to much wine, teaching what is good. All of these are things that come under the purview of, of lives that are lived under sound doctrine, within the realm of sound doctrine. Talking about the, the uh, older women stimulating or living for the purpose of stimulating young women and loving young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, subject to their own husbands, with the purpose that the word of God would not be dishonored. And then likewise, he talked about young men being sensible in all things. You yourself be an example of good things with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say. And all of these, we looked at different individuals, older, younger men and women. And then uh, Paul turns the attention to bond slaves or to slaves. And um, he says that slaves should be subject to their master in everything to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing good faith. And then he concludes there with a statement so that the so that um, they would adorn the doctrine of God and Savior in every respect. 
And so here is a, a text there that talks about the purpose for these, for this activity, why we would do that. He gives, actually, we looked at it last time, four purpose clauses in this section, one of them at the beginning of verse four, so that they may encourage young women to love their husbands. The second one was in the middle of verse five, so that the word of God would not be dis. No, the second one is uh, in the middle of verse four, so that young women would love their husbands, so that the word of God would not be dishonored. Verse six is a, is a third one, so that the opponent would not, would be not be, the opponent would be put to shame, having nothing bad to say. And then the fourth one, which is the end of the text, so that they would adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. That idea of adorning means to set it in kind of a position of contrast, to put it up like you would put a photograph of somebody that you love on the mirror, and you would maybe put a, bear, a border around it or something to amplify it to say that that's the person that I endure their picture. I have Elaine's picture on the side of my bed there in front of the uh, kind of propped up to look at. And I see her and, and I don't talk to her obviously, but I talk to the Lord about her and thankful to the Lord for her and stuff like that. But you adorn something that you care for. And this kind of brings into focus the purpose of our living and the purpose of our submission is to adorn the doctrine of God and the teacher, the teaching of our, our Savior. Uh, the text that we're looking at beginning in our passage today starts out in verse 11. Uh, it says, uh, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous of good deeds. Now in this, this text here, we are, we are directed toward the grace of God, but don't forget it falls on the the heels of verse 10, which talks about adorning uh, the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. As I was studying this text and you go through the language, um, there are a couple of interesting things in it that I want to share with you. In the English language, when we have something in a passage of scripture that we want to emphasize, we'll either put it in all uppercase or we'll put it in bold type or sometimes we'll put it in italics, or sometimes we'll underline it. And it's just to make this, this phrase stand out. Well, in our passage here, we have two phrases that are put in contrast. The, the Greek language does it a little bit different from the English, but it's this, nonetheless the same effect of setting a phrase in contrast. And the first one is here in this passage, the, the phrase or the the, the words doctrine of God, our savior are given emphatically. It is, uh, it is emphasized, it is emphasized in the Greek, stressing the fact that this, this uh, adorning that is the, the result of the adorning, the result of our living, the result of our obedience, the result of our willingness to die to self and to live under Christ, the result of our being 
Bible uses the term being crucified with Christ. It's a way of saying we die to self and are raised with him or living with him and living for him. It is a result of seeking those things which are above and not the things on the earth. Uh, it is a result, the Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Or the opposite of that is not to love the world, but to love Christ and to set your affections on him. All of that, uh, the result of that, according to this passage, is to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Adorn uh, means to set in supreme example or contrast. Uh, Weist says this about the word adorn. He says it means to put in order or to arrange like an ornament, to adorn, to decorate, to garnish. The noun form, which is very similar to this word, in fact, they sound almost identical, is the word cosmos, which cosmos means an orderly system, a system um, where harmony prevails. Cosmos is the word that we translate people sharing on Sunday morning, world, or the, the things of the world, the things of the world system, the organized system of the world. That's kind of maybe a little bit confusing in a way when the when the Bible talks about love not the world, not the organized system of the world, but to love God. And, and uh, we are over and over again, it, it talks about Christ came into the world and he, uh, John 3.16 says he loved the world. What does it mean by that? I think of a, a wedding maybe uh, is a good way to see this organization and this structure. In a wedding, we have a lot of things that are involved. We have different kinds of people, different age groups. Uh, we have going to a different place. We have different items that would be set up and uh, different things that are being said and perhaps a program of different things, but they're, they're not they're not given out in hodgepodge fashion. It's, in other words, it's not like that everything is thrown into a bucket and you just take it and stir it up and you get this and you get this and you get this and you get this. And then we just go through this stuff in a mixed match portion uh, fashion. But rather, these things are organized and structured and presented in such a way so that you have different people, even many of them dressed in the same color scheme and stuff to follow a scenario and a, a schedule and a pattern that has been already previously set up so that there's a program that runs smoothly according to a, a pattern, a standard, an intended preamble, maybe an intended purpose, and it's all organized. And that kind of helps us to see, at least I'm thinking in a, in a certain fashion, the world, the structure of the world, the structure of, of the, 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 the world ruled by Satan as well as God's plan to come into the world that he set up because he's the one that created the world and the heavens and the earth and he set it up with a pattern and a structure and a, an intention that the world would one day give a message and we're going to see here that that message is to glorify and honor its creator and to set to Jesus on a pedestal and to magnify him and the grace and what his, his coming and his living and his dying is intended to be a classroom of studying about the Lord and his grace. Because how do we know about the grace and the mercy of God unless we see a place where it is displayed that God is, is confronted with a rebellion that is insurmountable and yet he himself humbles himself 
and goes to the extreme that Jesus did, we saw this morning on the cross for us, later to be a display of this majestic grace of this great God that is the creator of everything. He's the only one who has the power of being in himself. Everything else depends on him. And so this, this pattern of the world is scheduled as a place to display to a large degree this plan, this organization, this structure with the intention that one day it will be a stage whereby we can look back and see the mercy, the grace, the goodness of God and see what he's like. Not just for us. We will be the, the show and tell illustrations, but for the watching angels. And the, I mean, you know, and you've heard it said that angels stood around the cross with swords drawn and with one snap of the fingers that Jesus could have had the entire population level, but he didn't. And he did. He, right. Thank you very much. He went through so much. We looked at this morning at the at the the suffering that Isaiah was talking about, that John was talking about, and how they mistreated him and how they beat him in the face and how he was beaten and, and whipped and stuff beyond recognition so that there was blood and that he wasn't even recognizable by those that looked upon him. They, in fact, they turned their faces from him. They didn't want to look at him. He went through that, and he went through that so that we, those that are, he has chosen to bring to himself, we might have our sins forgiven, that he can come and, and pursue us. That's what I'm talking about when I say, to me, I can't, it's hard for me to look at this and to see his suffering for me and then turn around and decide I'm going to live my life on my own terms and for myself. Yeah, I, I'm attracted to the world. And yes, the things of the world are attractive and pleasing. And I like those things very much. But those things are a distraction. They, they lead me away from the purpose and the hope that Christ has for me. The real fulfillment is not found in getting up in the morning and living for myself, even though I would enjoy going on a cruise. I would enjoy going to Disney World. I would enjoy taking vacation, those things. But you know what? When you have all the funds and you can do that thing, it is not fulfilling. It's not doesn't fulfill the purpose for which you were created. The only way you can have that purpose is to fight it in Christ and to live for Him. That's really the value of, of dying to self and being. That's what it means, crucified with Christ. And so, in this passage here, the focus here is that the life, the direction of the life of these different age groups and bond slaves, is to exalt the doctrine or the teaching of God our savior doctrine is the word teaching and i did a brief word study of that this morning i got up i went to bed last night i came in i ate got something to eat and i, I have done this on about four different occasions i was really tired so i laid down for maybe maybe 10 minutes i didn't have i do have a timer and i was going to get it i said i'll just leave it there and i went to sleep and i didn't wake up around four this morning and uh, so I was uh, just, I guess you could say I was tired. I did wake up a couple of times in the middle of the night. And I said, oh, I need to get up. And then I just went right back to sleep again. So anyway, what the, whatever that means, it means. But I woke up this morning and went through a brief Bible study of this word, word doctrine. And I found out it's used once, I think, once in Ephesians, once in Galatians. I think it's twice in Romans. But it's used about seven or six or seven times, uh, no, more than that, by Paul to Timothy, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus. And so it tells me that this is an important word to those who are teaching and those who are in possess what he's using this, this the, the teaching of God, the doctrine of God about our Savior. And uh, I'm thinking about this, and the doctrine, the teaching is 
it's a compilation and it is an examination of what scripture, not just what one verse says in the scripture, but what one verse says with all the rest of the verses in scripture say about it. So that it's not just, you don't just take one verse and amplify this and this becomes the life verse of everything because that verse doesn't stand in isolation. Some verses are more in isolation than others, but it, it, it is uh, kind of shepherded and kind of kept in bounds by other passages of scripture that you put into context so that it, it uh, because you look into the scripture and you find the sovereignty of God, but you also have an equal balance of God has given man free will, men make decisions. And it's kind of hard, really it is hard to reconcile those, but they're both intention and their intention in balance in God's word. And it's important to see that. And so um, when you talk about the teaching of these things, you're talking about these things that are studied and then are presented in a kind of a balanced form. So the result of that and what we're saying is um, in this verse nine, where it says bond and verse nine, we're looking at bond slaves, be subject to their own masters and everything to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of the doctrine of God and the savior in every respect. The thing I want to say is to look for a moment at that little pronoun, they. Who is they? When he says that they, well, the immediate context is the bond slaves, the slaves, that they will adorn the doctrine of God. But in the larger context and the whole argument, this whole passage, it has to do with anybody who is a believer. That that's why we're living the way we're living. And so that's important to see that this is all believers, and it means that all believers are to live so that they adorn or set in order this world, this, this structure that they're living in, in a way that will display God's grace, God's mercy, God's goodness. Just a couple of passages to show you that, and we'll get into the text, and that is in 1 Peter 3, 5. Peter writes, for in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, so that that submission to their own husbands was a a mark that kind of set them apart and this was just part of their nature part of what you saw when you looked at them that they were not rebellious women they were women who loved the lord and because they loved the lord they were part of the family they were submitting themselves in not in a way that made them uh just a thoughtless slave but in ways that meant that they were serious about their love for the lord and and seeking to do his will and please him and put god's will first um, that word is also used in Revelation 21 too, where he said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which was coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned, there's that word, for a husband. The new Jerusalem is coming down, and the new Jerusalem is made ready as a bride. Now, I have performed a few weddings, not a lot, but a few, but in every one that I've been to, when you look down the aisle and you see the bride coming, she is beautiful. She is just she's just adorned and, and made to be to look so attractive and you know what the lord i think i was thinking about that the lord has really done a marvelous job of creating beauty in this world sunrises i think sunsets i think of the beauty of the grand canyon i think of the beauty of some of these the woods when you go out went out the other day it was heavy rain the rain stopped and the sun came out and everything was wet and washed. And I looked at the trees, the green, the grass, the flowers for the spring. And it was beautiful, just absolutely beautiful. 
And I'm thinking of the, the ability of the Lord to make beauty, but here is the new Jerusalem, and he has intentionally made it to stand out in his beauty as our new dwelling place. Do we need any more than just that to know that it's going to be a beautiful place? I mean, I mean, with all the beauty he's created, but here is something that he's created is coming down. It's going to be our dwelling place. We're going to live with him. And he has intentionally made it beautiful like a bride who has already been adorned for her husband. I have no, no idea what it's going to look like, but I do know this is going to be magnificent. It will be beautiful. Here's that word adorned. Uh, it's used in Matthew 12. And I need to move on because we're spending a lot of time with this one word, but it's an important word because it's how we are to live to exalt God's word. Verse 40, verse 12, 43 says, Now when the, own, uh, the unclean spirit comes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the, finds the house unoccupied and swept and put in order. The words put in order are the word adorned. What it means is he said that when Satan, when, when God is cleaned out of life like that and Satan leaves, house is set in order then he comes back to the seat that's setting in order it's kind of an invitation to come back and that's just a picture to show us of this word adorned that means that our life is to seek to set in order and to example to exalt god's word in our life now how can this be done how the, how can this be done is by uh examining ourselves and to the, the text here gives us an emphasis on the word grace and you know the word grace and if I, I i think it's important to see that because he talks about the grace of god has appeared but the word grace itself is a word we're common we're very familiar with god's riches at christ's expense it's a word that's it's almost like god's open hand of giving but it's his open hand of giving in a way that it, that uh sets us because we are we're getting stuff that we don't deserve we are being exalted to a place that we don't deserve that is true we, we really we sometimes take god's grace for granted and people you know like after 9 11 that tragic accident not accident but that attack really or other places people sometimes are you know car wreck and somebody is killed like a little baby or whatever is killed in the early age and we see these things and we think what a tragedy or we have a, a hurricane or a tornado that comes around and does a lot of damage like it did. I was talking to a man the other day in line who was from New Orleans. He was talking about, he was talking about New Orleans. And New Orleans had had that, that Katrina thing with other damage and stuff that had been done down there. And so, but we sometimes, we, we, we say, how can God allow that to happen? How can he allow this tragedy to take place and do this? How can he allow this person? I have a young man that I'm praying for. You can pray for him. His name is James. A John Hobbs, H-O-B-B-S, he's at work, he's a young man, uh, and he's just recently been diagnosed with the Hodgkin's lymphoma in his neck, in a little tumor back there. And um, so I told him, I told him about three or four times, that I give him a card to come out to the church and stuff, that I uh, said, I'll be praying for you, John. And I do, I try to remember to pray for him. And he's very appreciative of that. But people say, well, how can this happen at such a young age? How can God do that? But you see, all of us are sinners. The, the question is that how can God not do that? How can God permit us to keep living and prospering even when we live? If you watch TV, you look at all the garbage on TV. You look at the lives of people. Everything we do 
is self-centered and we're pushing more and more and more godless lifestyles, the homosexual lifestyle, the LGBT stuff, all this stuff that is contrary to the scriptures and we keep doing it. We have just, I don't want to get into it, but we act like that we deserve grace when it's actually the opposite is true. We don't deserve grace. That's why it's called grace. And yet we bask under a torrential downpour of his mercy and grace. And he's constantly showering us with um, this passage here is telling us that God's outreach to us is in grace. And there are many places, um, Luke 2, 4, just several verses quickly, that talks about the child Jesus. Um, and when he went to Jerusalem for what we might call his bar mitzvah, and he was there in the temple, was teaching and stuff, and then after he went home with his parents, it says there in Luke 2, 40, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the favor or the grace of God was upon him. God's, it doesn't mean that Christ didn't deserve that. It means that here is a man who had the, the focused blessing and the presence and the abundance of the Spirit on him more than any other man. That's God's favor was on him. He was basking in the favor of God. Uh, it is used in Acts 14 where Paul was preaching in Iconium and the team was ministering God's word. And it says, therefore they spent a long time speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. And he was testifying to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders. He was testifying. What is he saying? He's saying that God's word is not just a word about theology, about God, about salvation, but it is a word that is describing and telling us about the, the abundant grace of God in Christ, in salvation, in his word. Because everything we, we, that God does for us is done in mercy and grace. We are so richly blessed by that. We are the recipients of this massive grace. Paul says, Romans 3, 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ. We are justified. We stand. We have to be justified is a is more of a statement than just a condition. It is a statement that comes from the judge, from Almighty God. And it is a statement that comes from Almighty God that tells us it's like it's like I'm taking my final exam. I took a I always the the worst exam I ever took was in church history at the King's College under Dr. Voss. He was a little short guy and he had four four year doctorates and he liked to show it off, I think. I don't know if he did or not, but he used his class. His class did. And uh, I can give you all kinds of stories about him. But when he got ready to do the final exam, he said, now, don't worry about the exam. We had four hours to do it, by the way. He said, there's going to be five questions on the exam. That's all you're going to have. Mm -hmm. And you can answer three of them. And we thought, well, man, that's going to be pretty easy. Well, we got the same thing and sat down and we saw the questions. Each question was a discussion question, an essay question. And it had to do with something like describe the Reformation, how it got started, what caused it, what was the end result. And uh, you could write almost a small pamphlet just on each question. And we only had three questions. I looked at that and I said, I think I'd rather have multiple choice. We got multiple <laughs> guesses. But yeah, this guy was, he was really pretty smart. But you know what? The, the be declared justified would be like the professor telling me as they come in the door, said, Peter, stop right there. I'm already putting you down. You've got an A plus. You've passed the exam. You can leave. That's what God is doing when he justifies us. He's telling us that you have passed the exam of my holy standard before 
to a watching world. You are accepted, you're perfectly clean, and you're justified. But it's not justified because of your goodness. It's justified by my grace, by faith. And so that's what he's done. And over and over again, we see that in this, in this text. That's what it means to be justified. Uh, Ephesians says um, that in the ages to come, he would show the surpassing riches. That's to us now. God would show the surpassing riches, the wealth of his grace. How? In his display of kindness towards us. So that throughout the ages of eternity, we, this is Ephesians 2, 7, we would be show and tell illustrations or areas of demonstration of his kindness, goodness to us as he displays his grace or the riches of his grace in us so that we would be uh, illustrations. And I am confident what among the things that means is that whatever this vast audience is of angels and uh, don't limit it to just a few hundred. I mean, if God has made billions of people on the planet, I'm sure he hadn't stopped to just a few hundred for angels. We got, in fact, Bible talks about myriads and myriads. It's a way of saying millions and millions of angels. And uh, each one of them has a name and each one of them, I mean, the Lord is pretty significant in his creation and he does a lot of things, including if you look out and you see all the leaves and the, the plants and the blades of grass and all the bugs that you can't see and all the birds. And he keeps each one of them functioning and going and uh, he's, he's overseeing that whole thing as well as us and everything is being done and one of the one preacher said he does it with his feet up Pete likes to talk about that it's not a it's not a heavy thing and that's because he is so magnificent and so capable and we one day will be before this massive audience of millions of angels and we will be giving a testimony a witness to describe the greatness of his mercy and grace. You understand, of course, this is a side note, but you understand that anytime a person is saved, they like, after they're, if they're genuinely saved, they like to give an account of their repentance. So that's kind of what John was talking about this morning. The Jews, Isaiah 53, is a record of the Jews. It's actually, instead of back to the future, it's forward to the past, I think is what he said, all right? And uh, it's a, a record of how the Jews, one day when they are saved, when God's grace overturns and a third of them come to know him, uh, they're going to look back at the one that they have rejected and crucified and what they thought God was giving them Jesus because he deserved it was actually he was punishing Jesus for their sin. They're going to look back and they're going to see that and they're going to cry out in mercy and grace. And so that, that, Confession in Isaiah 53 is a confession of them admitting where they were wrong and how wrong they were and how how deceived they were and how they have been had their lives turned around. That confession is something that all of us we like to do. We don't do it much anymore, but I've been to churches and Howard Luck uh, talked about that several times. Said, "Let's do that." We sometimes on Sunday morning we get somebody asking to come up and just tell us a brief testimony of how they came to know the Lord. They like to do that. They like to give that testimony. I think of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. You ought to read it when you get home sometime. Nebuchadnezzar, on his own, before his own Chaldean audience, those, those uh, Chaldeans, that, those, those magi that were in his kingdom, he was the boss of them, and, and Daniel was number two. And he call, everything he calls them together, he doesn't tell us when, I envision on a Saturday morning, he comes in and says, guys, come on in, get down. I want you to start writing. And he starts out telling, I, Nebuchadnezzar, and he, 
gives a first-person testimony of his conversion, how he was converted, and how he exalts, exalts the God of heaven over his own hard-hearted, stubborn. That's one of the reasons why I know he's in heaven right now, because that sign of, of giving a testimony of the greatness and the majesty and the glory of God in the face of his own sin and rebellion and hard-heartedness is a testimony of God's grace and work in his life. That's this Daniel chapter 4. You'll read it when you get home. Anyway, this testimony here uh, is found in this in this, this passage here. As we talk about God's grace, um, in Ephesians 2, 7, with the age to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Both the grace and the salvation is a gift of God. It's not a result of your works, your religious activity, or your conjured up belief or something like that. Uh, it's not a result of you so that no one can boast. And by the way, let me just say this to you as well. Your faith to be saved is not just your believing about something in Christ. Uh, if you want to, to believe it, you get, need to read your Bible and let the Lord open your heart. Because unless he opens your heart, you won't be able to come. Because we're all, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, dead in trespasses and sins. Dead man can't receive anything, can't believe anything, can't accept anything. And the only way you can accept it is if God opens your heart. So when Paul says you're dead in trespasses and sins, he goes on to say, but God opened their heart. The Lord opens your heart. You can embrace and believe it and trust it, and you'll turn around your life. So it's it's not just something you intellectually exercised your mind, but it is something that the Spirit of God has been able to work in your heart. Jesus told Peter when he asked Peter, what men say that I am the Son of Man am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What did Jesus say to him? He said, you are very fortunate and blessed, Peter. Son of John, because flesh and blood didn't yield this to you. Why are you blessed? Because my Father is working in your heart. He's teaching you directly. You're getting information from heaven, not from other men, but from heaven. And you are very fortunate because that means you belong to him. You're his property. You're working. He's working in your heart. So um, back to our text here. This is the grace of God. And he goes on to say that this grace of God has appeared. Um, this means a kind of a not just a, a theory about grace, but an a, a experience, a, a form that could be described. John says it like this, talking about God's grace and, and being in Jesus. He says, the word became flesh, remember this John 1.14, and dwelt among us. And we as individuals, as, as the nation of Israel and his people, uh, and then particularly here, the apostles, uh, we saw his glory. We saw his contrast, uh, the contrast, the glory of the uniquely born of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was full of grace. He was full of mercy. He was full of, of extending to people of patience and love like they did the rich young ruler, like he did to Nicodemus, like he did to the woman at the well, like he did at Simon, even Simon Peter. He's full of grace. When many times when Peter went back to fishing, Jesus would come by and patiently work with him and bring him back. And full of grace and is also full of truth. He didn't allow uh, people to come up and, and say things and teach things and walk away if they were teaching error. He always directed them. And even if he had to do it harshly, okay, and he always did that. He was, we saw his glory full of grace and truth. John has testified about him crying out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. 
for of his fullness we have all received grace for corresponding grace that's a difficult passage but it just means that as we receive i think the uh, the hymn amazing grace kind of interprets that uh in grace we have received in grace we have believed it's grace that opens our eyes it's grace that helps us to see our sin it's grace that enables us to repent grace for corresponding grace the law was given through moses the grace and truth came through jesus christ one more word and i'll stop because i'm running out of time and i'm not finished yet but i need to bring it to a close we comes on the word of grace here we says he had the, the i mean the word uh, appearance uh, appeared and we says that the word appearing has to do with showing forth or exhibiting or shining light upon that means that we want to to uh look at the grace of god in christ and see him uh as christ coming god's grace coming in form of man and uh showing his his uh exhibiting him uh, <clears throat> shining light on him he, and that's what he did he his life and his coming exalts and magnifies God's grace, the person of God. Um, he goes on to say, shine light upon, that is, upon the surface. Usually it's used in the passive tense, meaning to show oneself openly or before the people to come forward to appear. Uh, and it usually has the idea of suddenly. So when it uses the idea that grace of God has appeared, it's the idea when it's talking about Christ coming, and that's what he's talking about, Christ coming, Christ coming with salvation. It has come suddenly, it's kind of unexpectedly. It's often used in the great literatures of gods, the gods, the, the, the mythology of gods, means to bring to light that which was previously unknown. And so he's, what, what Paul is saying here is when he talks about the grace of God, he's talking about the person of God's salvation and the person of God's provision in Christ has appeared and it has come bringing salvation Bringing the word salvation has to do with deliverance, bringing deliverance from all men. Um, I like the idea of all men there. Don't don't misunderstand that to mean that he has come and all men have been saved. He has come to make salvation available for all men. You could actually translate that probably better, all mankind. He's come to bring salvation and making it available for all mankind. And he did. And that's been the manifestation that he is he has um undertaken to do and so here's the text now that's getting us started in this passage and i'll give you four things just statements as he begins to unfold now this coming and this display of salvation that is in the person of christ he goes past present future and i got this uh, part of this outline from john i thought it was a very good outline he has come and he will show us the past deliverance from sin's penalty um, his present work that he's going to be talking about in this verse is the his deliverance from the power of sin, and then the future reality of the salvation that he is going to be that he is providing is the the uh, being saved from the very presence of sin. So it's the penalty of sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin that he is going to save us from, which shows us that we understand that the salvation is not just a one-time thing, but it covers his past and the present and the future. And then the fourth point has to do with his internal, his eternal greatness, the security that we have in that salvation. Those four things that we'll be looking at in this text as we are going to be taking up uh, beginning in verse uh, 12 and go through the end of the text. And the thing I guess that we want to just take with us on this is to, to uh, recognize the greatness of what God has done 
for us and the sufficiency of that work on the cross to provide his salvation, his son, at such cost for those who are worth. Actually, we are we're destined to judgment except for the mercy of God to intercede in our behalf. So we are we are really, really, really blessed. And I struggle with this all the time. I really do because I might quiet down the all kinds of things I pray about. But the one thing I have hardest with me is me. It's a bigger problem that I have than anybody else. So let's pray. Father, do thank you for thank you for our wonderful Savior. I really appreciate John's message this morning. Uh, and I just thank you so much for John MacArthur and his work and his church. I pray for him. Pray for the work there. Pray for this church. I thank you for these people. I do pray for them all the time. I pray for our hearts. I pray it doesn't do any good to talk. If your spirit is not working, I pray that your word and your spirit will be working in our hearts. I pray that you would give us an insight into what we pursue in life. I was talking about that with some friends the other day, that just to pursue living for self is an empty, dead, pointless life that provides no hope and no solution. It may be in self-indulgent for a while because Satan does that to make us feel like we're getting somewhere, but it always ends in disaster. Help us to see beyond that. Open our hearts. Help us to seek you, to serve you, to love you, and put you first in our lives. And I pray you'll do that, especially in my heart, because my heart is, I struggle with that all the time. And I just thank you for your mercy, and I thank you for your grace, and I thank you for the Savior and for his love for us. And ask your blessing now upon the remainder of the service. Pray also for tonight and the Inquirer's Bible study. Lord, I pray you'll bring some out tonight that uh, need to hear, need the fellowship, need the answers that, that are there as we look at your precious word and let it look into our hearts and lives. Pray your blessing now upon this, this rest of this day. We pray in Jesus' name and thanksgiving. Amen.